It's go time. Previously on Third Down Gamble. And as we had kind of speculated, there's a lot of home games for the West early on in the season. A lot of the East teams are on the road and aren't going to see their home stadium. I think that was to be expected with the, the rules in place in Quebec and Ontario. One of the things that really jumped out at me in the schedule, though, is Ottawa and Winnipeg do not play this year unless it's in the Grey Cup. You are listening live to Quick Kicks, a presentation of Third Down Gamble. Welcome everyone today, a very special guest from Toronto, Paul Woods. Paul, glad to have you on the program. Thank you, Don. Great to be here. You are a historian of the Toronto Argonauts, but let's, before we get into the Argos and all of that, let's talk about you and where your life has taken you. Where did it all start? How did you get into media? Okay, thanks. Um, well, I mean, I uh, I grew up in London, Ontario, and I became an Argo fan as a kid. My dad was a big Argo fan, and I got, I got very interested in the team when I was around 10 years old, about 68 or so. Uh, during high school years, I actually I sort of didn't pay super close attention to the team during the during the mid early to mid seventies. I was I watched the seventy one Grey Cup, but I was into other stuff during high school. And one of the things I did to high school was I was the editor of the student paper in the high school for two years. I went off to Western University uh, in seventy five showed up in the offices of the Gazette, which is the student paper there. It was at that time published twice a week. And I did some work for them. I did some, my first story got on the front page, which was an amazing feeling to see everybody walking around campus reading my story and got kind of the bug for it. And I, I was told my very first day in there that, you know, people get, they go from the Gazette, they get jobs in the newspaper business, basically. Um, and they gave me some examples of people, you know, last year's editor now working for so-and-so. And so that was in the back of my mind. And then, and then university became a lot more work than high school had ever been a lot more reading. I kind of sailed through high school without doing a ton of work and suddenly in university you had to read a ton. Right. And so I kind of drifted away a bit from the Gazette, did a couple of years of university. And then I wanted to figure out what I want to do with my life. Like I didn't, I'd, I'd sort of hit my my wall with the courses I was taking. I was taking religious studies and philosophy, and I, I felt like I'd done everything I'd wanted to do in that, and I was only through two years. So I took a year off to sort of figure out what I was going to be when I grew up, essentially. Got married during that year, and uh, while working at a car rental place as the guy that cleans the cars and ferries customers around and stuff, I had this blinding revelation that I ought to be a journalist. Like it just, it was like so blindingly obvious once I figured it out, but I hadn't thought about it to that point. I knew I had to get my degree. So I'm going to go back to Western. I'm going to finish the degree, but more importantly, I'm going to get really involved with the Gazette. Uh, I'm going to get elected to a position, like a leadership role there, and see where that leads me. So I went back for third year, doing mostly news reporting, did a bit of sports, but mostly news. And uh, I ran, and I, in fact, I ran, there were, there were two full-time paid positions in the Gazette at the time, uh, the editor-in-chief and the managing editor. And they would get, you get like an eight-month contract for the school year, September to April, paid by the Students' Council, which was sort of the funder of the paper, to run the paper for those eight months. The two paid jobs, I ran on a ticket with somebody I'm sure you've heard of, Steve Simmons. He's Canada's most renowned sports columnist these days, has been for a long time. And Steve ran for managing editor. I ran for editor-in-chief as we ran as a pair. Steve won. I lost. So I, so I was going to go back and then just be like an unpaid news editor and still kind of write it out for the, for because I still had to get one more credit anyway. Uh, and then Steve went off to a job in the Calgary, I think it was the Calgary Albertan at the time, it later morphed into the Calgary Sun. They ended up offering him a, a permanent job. So he didn't come back to school. So in September, the managing editor job was open and they had to run, do a runoff election, which I ran for and I got the, the job. I was one of the two editor, paid editors of the Gazette for that uh, year of 1979-80, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And uh, one, this is a long story. I'm sorry, I'm probably giving you way too much detail. Uh, one day, you know, a guy, previous editor from the Gazette, was in. So, oh, we, you know, the company I'm working for, they're they're hiring down in a little town in Ontario called Nanticoke, which is over, sort of in the Tobacco Belt, southwestern Ontario, maybe an hour's drive out of London or so. So yeah, my, my company's looking for a reporter. You should apply for it. So I applied. And uh, I got offered the job and I took it. And in fact, my wife and I, we, we even found an apartment to live in, in Simcoe, which is the sort of the only decent sized town in the area. But I was still finishing up the school year and finishing up my, my gig at the Gazette. 
And uh, one day on a whim, kind of, I, I walked over to the journalism school. I didn't, I wasn't in the journalism school. I, my, my journalism school was the Gazette. Two sides mostly didn't really have much respect or love for each other back then. But I walked over to the J school one day and looked at the job board. And there was an offer of a summer, like we're hiring for summer jobs for Canadian Press, which is the national news agency. I didn't know much about Canadian press, but I knew it was in Toronto. And I thought, man, that'd be cool. I should at least like, see if I can get an interview and go through the process of interviewing for a job in the big city. So I went for this interview. I thought it was terrible. I thought I completely bombed. Uh, and then the next day they phoned and offered me a summer job. So then I had the choice, summer job at Canadian press. It was only gonna last like 16 weeks or whatever, or a permanent job in a small town, Nanticoke. And I thought about it for a day and consulted with a bunch of my friends and colleagues and everybody at the, at the paper, except the ad saleswoman said, oh, you got to go to Toronto. Uh, and the ad, the ad saleswoman said, oh, you and your wife will be so happy in a small town. I thought, no, I won't. So I took the CP job for, for the 16 week job in Toronto, left my wife behind in London. We, we, we sort of commuted by train over on the weekends that summer. And I instantly fell in love with the work of working for a news agency. It was incredibly exciting to be on top of stories before anybody else. I mean, we live in a world now where every news outlet is, is filing news live and on the fly. But back in 1980, the only places that were filing news live and on the fly were the news agencies. We had to, we had somebody had a deadline coming up every half hour all day long, whether it was radio stations, TV stations, or newspapers from one end of the country to the other. Live news had to be handled expeditiously. So I would sometimes write a story, literally one sentence at a time, feed the story to the editor, the editor re reads it, edits it, it gets on the wire. Then you're giving them another sent two sentences after that. And then you just keep building stories through the day. Uh, you know, the big stuff, I mean, routine stuff, you just handle the whole story as one thing but anything that was urgent and breaking we handle it with uh, with speed and you had to be not only speedy but accurate and well written so I just loved it like from day one I thought man this is the place for me I love this place I love this work and I wanted to work there for my whole career and I, I almost did I was there I stayed there for almost 32 years uh, eventually I left I ended up doing some other things in journalism I worked as an executive editor at the Toronto Star for a couple of years and I'm now working at the National Newspaper Awards as executive director but that was my path into journalism it, uh, it shows what perseverance will do for you well I mean it was it was also luck right like I got I got lucky enough that they offered me that interview and I got lucky enough that they liked the way the interview went. It's funny, like they used to give people a spelling quiz because you're going to work for Canadian Press. You have to know how a lot of tricky words are spelled. The, the whole news media runs on a thing called Canadian Press style. There's there, CP has style rules on how do you spell liquefy and inoculate and how is it Beijing or Peking, all those things. And I happen to know CP style pretty well. And I also knew how to pencil edit, like I, I got a, handed a sheet of 45 words and I said, okay, edit this. Some of them are right, some of them are wrong. And so I went with my pencil and I, I flip letters around or I'd pencil in what the correct spelling was or the take out, you know, drop a, a letter and put, put a little squiggle between the, the other letters to show that you take out the U there or whatever. And I was watching the, the, the bureau chief, one of the two guys interviewing me, I was watching him mark the thing up. And I'm, I'm looking at it, I'm looking X, 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 and I'm going, holy geez, I really screwed this up. And I saw that I got nine wrong out of 45, and I thought, oh man, I'm, I'm cooked. And then, he, and then he literally scrunched the thing up into a ball and threw it in the garbage. And the other editor beside us said, well, aren't you going to keep that? And he says, well, why should I? And he sounded like Martin Sheen in Apocalypse Now, like very intimidating presence. And I left there thinking, well, that was, that was a good experience, but it's not going anywhere. And then they called me the next day and offered me the job. And many, many years later, when I was the bureau chief and I was at the same job as that guy that scrunched it up, I gave that quiz to all the people in my newsroom one day when there was nothing happening news-wise. And the best journalist in the room got 22 wrong out of 45. So nine out of 45 wasn't too bad, right? So there you go. That's awesome. <laughs> all right. You've made a quick reference. 1968 is when you started to follow the Argonauts. And now, if I'm not mistaken, Leo Cahill was the coach. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, that was the that was the early stages of the Leo Cahill's first first run with the Argos. And what what attracted me to them? I mean, the fact that my dad was a fan helped, but it, more it was more that I liked the Argos were. I described them in, I wrote a book about the 83 Argos and I described in the introduction to help my introduction to the Argos back in the late sixties was that they were the first adults I'd ever seen other than musicians 
who had long hair and looked cool. The Argos were, Leo had all these renegades, Mel Prophet and Dick Thornton and my favorite player at the time, Bobby Taylor. These guys had long hair sticking out of the back of their helmets. And in those days, there wasn't much long hair in sports. And the Argos just looked really cool, handlebar mustaches and stuff. And I, and I love the color scheme, the double blue color scheme. And Leo just seemed to revel in the fact that we're going to be the renegade band. And I just got, I got swept up in that thought, this is the coolest thing going. And they were also getting good, right? They had a hard time. They couldn't get past Ottawa in 68 and 69. Russ Jackson was there. And, you know, there was the famous, uh, it would only, it would take an act of God to beat us. The line from Leo, I think it was in the 68 Eastern final after game one. And then game two, Russ Jackson walked on water, right? And God, the act of God happened. But they were building and building and they ended up getting to the Great Cup in 71. As we all know, they lost. Leon McQuay fumbled and, and Harry Aboffs kicked the ball out of bounds was it Harry Abus? Yeah, it was Harry Abus. I think we kicked the ball out of bounds after the Leon McQuay fumble. But that was a fun, it was a really fun team. They did Bill Simons and Dave Ramey, and then they got Leon McQuay in 71. And man, I've never seen a, a more impressive football player than Leon McQuay. Like his remember this one photograph of him in mid-stride running, and both his legs are up in the air as he's as he's accelerating, and the thighs looked like they were the size of a tree trunk. And he just looked really cool with that number 24. And I thought, man, this is this is the team. So I became really seriously serious, a big serious fan of them. And actually, I got really serious and dedicated in, in late 76, early 77, right around the time Leo came back for his second stint. And from that point on, I've been basically documenting the history of the Argonauts to the ridiculous degree. They got literally dozens of boxes of newspaper clippings and so much stuff and videotapes and DVDs and just everything you can imagine. Right. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I got the bug. That's for sure. The 71 team, I think can be described as one of the best teams that never won the gray cup. That's right. That, in fact, there was a documentary. I think that might've been the name of the documentary. It was a, they should have won. Dick, Dick Thornton made an interception late in the game and was running it back for a touchdown. And he just happened to choose the wrong angle on, on the quarterback, Jerry Keeling. And Jerry Keeling was a good tackler because he also played defensive back back when guys played both ways. And Keeling tackled him, I think at the 11 yard line or something. And if Thornton had turned the other way, probably in the end zone and, and they win the gray cup and Thornton's the MVP. So a lot of things And then Leon's fumble. And of course, nowadays that wouldn't have been considered a fumble. I don't think because he slipped. Nobody touched him. The ground caused it. I don't actually know what the ruling would be under the the current rules, but in those days, there was a live ball and he slipped and fell. And as Leo said, Leon slipped and I fell. Technically, the call would still stand today. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. If you're not contacted prior to going down. Yeah, that's true. It would make sense. You couldn't, you couldn't just let the ball like sit there. It's got to, it would have to stand. That's true. Yeah. But they didn't give it to Bill Simons, man. Like they had Bill Simons. He wasn't going to fumble it, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, if you could only revisit those choices. Exactly. Exactly. Also, that, that was a wet turf. It had oh, rained yeah. in Vancouver. Yeah. It was, it was, the, I, I'm just about positive. It was the very first Great Cup ever played on artificial turf. And it was a pouring rain day. And the turf, as you know, the turf in those days was like a, was basically cement with green paint on it, right? I mean, so yeah, it was super, super slick and Leon's whole game was fast cuts he tried to make a cut and his legs went out from under him and the ball came popping out and they of course lost to a Calgary Stampeder team that had been knocking at the door quite a few times themselves that's right and that team was looking at it maybe as their last shot yeah, that's very true. They 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 fell off the map for the rep for most of the seventies, and uh, they'd been there, they'd had a great team with Pete Lisk as the quarterback a couple of years earlier, and and they lost I think to both Ottawa and Montreal in two out of three years in the Grey Cup I think in sixty eight and seventy. So it really was their their time, and they hadn't won I think since forty eight, right? So it was a, there was a lot of pent up demand for a Grey Cup from Calgary, which the Argos were in the middle of going through, right? So it took them thirty one years to get theirs finally. And that would be 1983, which you alluded to a little bit earlier. And that was in BC yep. against a, a home team Lions. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I was got that game. That was an amazing experience to be there in that 60,000 seat stadium the first year it had opened and very pro Lions crowd being in Vancouver. And they had Crazy George back then banging on the drum and getting people stirred up. And the Argos were trailing the whole game, right? I mean, they were they were down 17 to 7 at halftime and Conrad Holloway, one of the greatest quarterbacks we ever had playing for the Argos, was having a rough day. He had the flu, and he and he, and he had to come out of the game for Joe Barnes. And Barnes gradually fought us, fought us back. Hank Alisic missed three field goals, but his punts kept pinning the Lions deep. 
and then finally made a 40, I think a 44 yarder or something uh, late in the game to get them within striking range, get them to within five points. And then Barnes got us down. Uh, there was an incredibly lucky fluky play where passed to my, my then favorite player, one of my all time favorites, Paul Pearson caught the ball over the middle, got hit. The ball popped up into the air, right into the arms of his teammate, Emmanuel Tolbert to maintain possession. And a few plays later, they ran a pick play where they where they basically took the defense out of the play and Cedric Minter had nobody around him and he ran in for a three yard reception for the touchdown from Barnes and uh, we were up 18 to 17 and then the longest three minutes of my life waiting for that game and I, I describe in the in the in the book in the introduction that uh, the two guys I was with one of them with one second left on the clock BC had the ball I think at their own 45 yard line there was one second left on the clock there'd be one play left my friend, my one friend leaned over to like offer me his hand, like to shake my hand because I, I was the biggest Argo fan of the bunch. And I said, no, like, it's not over. There's a second left. Come on, man. Like, get real. It's the Argos. They can find a way to blow this, right? But we didn't. We got, we got to bask in it. It was an amazing feeling. And then in 87, of course, the game against Edmonton, which was an unbelievably wild game. A lot of CFL fans say the best Grey Cup ever was 1989. That was the Saskatchewan-Hamilton game with the Tony Champion catch and Dave Ridgway's kick at the end, 43-40, an amazing game for sure. But I personally believe this 87 game was the greatest Grey Cup of all time. And even though the Argos lost by two points on a last play field goal, I, I left, I, I was, I went to that game sort of at the spur of the moment at the very last minute, I took a 12 hour bus ride from Calgary to get to the game. And I had to take a 12 hour bus ride home and I wasn't even depressed, even though the Argos had lost because it was just an unbelievable game. I think the lead changed hands either four or five times in the fourth quarter. And big, big names who also had big nicknames. Gizmo Williams has 116 yard missed field goal touchdown. Gil, the thrill Fennerty in his first year for the Argos goes for a 75 yard long bomb touchdown. Doug, the tank Landry scores a touchdown when, uh, when Glenn Kalka unconcusses Matt Dunnigan and makes him fumble and tank Landry runs it in late at the game. The Argos are behind and they've got now got their second string quarterback in Danny Barrett. And he somehow ran untouched up the middle for a long touchdown. Like it was a crazy game. Yeah, and, and they, the CFL really needed that game because they, that was the year the Alouettes had folded on the eve of the season, and you know, they were life and death to survive. Uh, in fact, uh, I didn't hear this personally, but one of my Canadian press colleagues who was in the happened to get into the press box elevator going down to the locker room with Doug Mitchell, then the commissioner of the league, and Doug said, "Oh man, did we ever need that game to be like that?" Because he like he knew how tenuous the, the, the league was at that point. So yeah, that was an amazing game to be at. I've been Lucky to be at every Argo Grey Cup since 82, except the one in Edmonton in 97. One of the great things with being an Argo fan, you know, we we have many years where we're in the wilderness and we're four and 14 or where we suck. But when we get to the Grey Cup, we almost always win. We've won. We've only lost one of the last seven times we've been in the big game. And often we're not the favorites. So we, we did lose that game in 87, but... Uh, you know, we won in 83, we won, of course, in 91 and 96, 97, blah, 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 blah. We might get to some of those, but. Uh... Well, 91, and it's against the Stampeders again. Yep. And Ricky Ray has a memorable game against them about a couple decades later. Yes. But in 91, that's the McNall Gretzky. And talk to me about that era in Toronto. What did it mean with John Candy coming on board? Yeah, I, I'm really happy to talk about it, Don. I mean, I've got a book coming out about it in a couple of months. Uh, it's called Year of the Rocket. Uh, and then the subtitle is John Candy, Wayne Gretzky, A Crooked Tycoon and the Craziest Season in Football History. And it really was in a crazy, crazy, amazing season. I describe it as the most magical, electrifying year in almost a century and a half of Argonauts football. Uh, and we were, you know, we were coming off. Remember, we moved, the Argos moved into Sky Dome in 89, but they were second class citizens from the beginning. It was really built for baseball. It wasn't built for football. Uh, they were owned by Harry Arnest in 89 and 90. And Harry was a really interesting character, but he didn't believe in spending money. And so they didn't market themselves very well. And they scooped up some pretty decent crowd numbers at times during 89 and 90, because there was still a lot of curiosity about the dome and so on. But we were really kind of on the downward slope, right? I mean, the, the peak of the Argos attendance wise was the late seventies. It blipped up again in 82, 83, when they got really entertaining and good. And then they won the great cup in 83. And then it started this sort of gradual decline year over year it's kept going down. Part of it was that exhibition stadium was a terrible venue for both football and baseball. Once they, once they changed it to a 
accommodate baseball. Part of it, I think, was that there was the pent-up demand for a Grey Cup that took 31 years for them to finally win in 83. There was a lot of people really putting, pinning their hopes on that. And when it finally happened, they were they had the implicit permission to start looking at other things. Let's watch the Blue Jays now. And the Blue Jays were just starting to get good, right? Things were not looking that great for the Argos back in 89, 90. And then out of the blue in February of 91, it gets announced that it would be embossed by Bruce McNall, Wayne Gretzky, and John Candy. And I mean, like, what, what more could you have asked for? You've got the, the greatest hockey player of all time who happens to be from Southern Ontario, the greatest comedian Canada ever produced, the funniest man Canada ever produced, most popular actor Canada ever produced in John Candy. And you got Bruce McNall, who at the time was perceived as this wealthy media or, or wealthy uh, sports tycoon with a, with a, with a Midas touch and you know, just a lovable guy and what could go wrong. And, and then two months later, they announced they're bringing in Rocket Ismail, who was the, you know, the biggest star in college football in the States, star for Notre Dame, the biggest school in the States, arguably. He was a runner up to the Heisman Trophy. He was going to be the number one pick in the NFL draft. And they paid him an amazing amount of money. For 20, well, they announced it as between $18 million and $26 million over four years. So even at 18, even at the low end, that's $4.5 million a year. The whole CFL team salary cap was $3 million at the time. So he himself was making one and a half times his entire team combined. And it was more money than any football player of any sport, of any, any football league had ever been paid. More than Joe Montana, more than Jerry Rice, all those guys. Nobody had ever made four and a half million bucks a year. So they bring in the rocket and it be, just became an amazing circus featuring John Candy. Went to the, on every road trip, day before the game in Regina. 500 fans showed up to watch the Argos practice because it was the Argos and it was Rocket and it was John Candy. Every city that they went to, John Candy would show up the day before the game. Well, actually, get there two days before the game. The morning of the day before the game, he'd go to every single radio station in town to promote the game. Buy tickets, buy tickets, come to the game. If we get enough people, we're gonna lift the blackout. And so everywhere the Argos went, the, the games were either sold out or very close to sold out. When Candy came into the stadium, the place went bonkers. It's Uncle Buck, right? It's it's the guy from it's Del Griffith from from planes, trains, and automobiles, and people just loved the man. And he loved he genuinely loved the Argos. He was and the CFL. I mean, he became the, the chair of the expansion committee. John and Bruce really pushed the idea of expansion to the U.S., which a lot of fans think was a huge mistake. But I argue it kept the league alive when they needed that money. But it was yeah, '91 was an unbelievable year, and of course it was capped off by craziest wildest gray cup the argos go into winnipeg against calgary coldest gray cup of all time arguably some people say there may have been a couple other ones that were colder but it certainly one of the coldest matt dunnigan is playing the game with a separate with a with a broken collarbone like he broke it the week before in the eastern final didn't practice never lifted up a football until the night before the game he goes into the ballroom with a couple of team doctors and team personnel and they inject him with some painkiller and see if he can throw the ball and he first he couldn't even get it five yards and eventually his arm loosened up and he could zing the ball so we get to the game day and all of a sudden matt dunnigan's on the field and as you watch him on the replays i've got the game of course and you watch it his arms hanging off the side like it's and he, he threw the ball deep 10 times and he connected on two long touchdown passes. Like it's most, it's the most courageous performance we've ever seen, in my opinion, in a, in a, in a Canadian football game. And of course the game is clinched at the end with Calgary pulls within one point, 22, 21, 10 minutes left. And lo and behold, the guy they pay four and a half million dollars to rocket Ismail grabs the kickoff, goes 87 yards for a touchdown, earns his money almost gets beaten by a frozen can of beer. It's all in the book. So I, I enjoyed writing it. It was an amazing story. And it's a, I do believe it's the most incredible year we've ever had with, with the Argos for sure. And maybe the most incredible year in Canadian football. At that time in Canadian football, scoring was going through the roof. Oh yeah. You're not kidding. I and mean, I was looking back at the media guides and you know, it's funny. There was a game. I'm trying to remember which, I think it was, yeah, there was a game where the Argos went to Edmonton in 91, uh, in August of 91, and they ended up losing the game 53 to 39. 
Uh, and on the very same night, at the same time that game was, was being played, there was an untelevised game in Saskatchewan. I believe it ended up 47-45 for the Lions over the Rough Riders. Like the scoring was bonkers. The Argos in 1990, it's funny, they, they won the Grey Cup in 91 and they had McNall and Gretzky and Rocket and, and Candy and all that, that circus that happened in 91. I make the point in the book that actually the 1990 offense of the Argonauts was the greatest offense the league's ever seen, in my view. They they had 689 points scored. They averaged almost 40 points a game, which was Don Matthews's bold prediction at the start of the year: we're gonna we're gonna shoot the lights out, we're gonna score 40 points a game. And everybody goes like, "What are you talking about?" And they came close. It was 38.3 or something that they managed. They had they they put up the second and third most points of all time. They scored 70 points on Calgary. They scored 68 points on BC, 59 points on Saskatchewan, a bunch of other games in the 40s. It was an amazing year. Daryl K. Smith had 20, 20 touchdown receptions. Pinball Clemens set a record with 3,300 all-purpose yards. And they were doing a lot of this with second, third, fourth string quarterbacks. Dunnigan was hurt most of the year. They brought rid Ricky Foggy off BC's practice roster, and he was lights out. It was one game in 1990. Foggy threw seven touchdown passes and ran for 100 yards in the same game. Like, that's that's just bonkers. And then they get to the Eastern final in Winnipeg and they're down to their fifth string quarterback, Tom Forrest. They just brought him back on the practice roster because Dunnigan was hurt. Foggy was hurt. Willie Gillis was hurt. John Kajemi was hurt. So they had to put Tom Porras into the game and they almost won the game. They, they, they were within one broken defensive coverage of getting the game to overtime. And I believe they would have won, but unfortunately Harold Hallman turned the wrong way. Tom Burgess ran up the middle for 38 or 40 yards and got the Bombers into field goal range to get to the Grey Cup. And the Bombers killed Edmonton in the Grey Cup. The Argos would have killed Edmonton just as bad had they got there. Oh, the would have beens. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I got a few of those, as all CFL fans do. But you're right, the scoring was amazing. I mean, the, the, the regularly teams put up 30, 35, 40 points. Uh, there was no such thing as defensive struggles back then. Uh, and I would suggest it was very entertaining. I mean, uh, you know, I like defensive football like everybody else does, but man, to see scoring going back and forth and long plays and big plays, and there's a lot of reasons why they, things have changed, you know, but uh, I wish we could get back to that level of entertainment. I think the entertainment value of 1990 and 91 has never, never been topped. Well, I think too, pace of play has slowed. Because it seems to me it takes about 32 to 34 seconds, even though there's a 20-second clock, for teams to get back to the ball. And I, I don't know if it was faster back then. Yeah, it actually, you're on to it for sure, Don. This has been a big pet peeve of mine for a few years. It was faster back then. And I mean, I can I can tell you this because I've got all the games, I've got all the Argo games on tape and I've, I've over the years, I have digitized them all. And, and I've got, I've got these, I've got this DVD recorder player thing where I can put the game in and watch it and I can do a 30 second skip feature. So I will, I can watch a play. I hear the whistle blow to end the play. I hit the 30 second skip feature. The ball's in play. It's either all Already in play or are they just doing the snap so it was taking between 20 and 30 seconds to snap from one play to the next now as you say you say 32 to 34 i would argue sometimes it's even worse i've seen i've sat in bmo field at times i listened for the whistle and then i watched the score clock and i watched the i watched it count down and i've seen as much as 45 seconds until the next ball is snapped and that's because the ref doesn't start the 22nd clock until he's figured out that all the substitutions are over and the chains are moved and everything and now because the rosters are bigger there's more substitutions they're always rotating in two new defensive linemen and they're changing you know bringing out a fullback and putting in another wide receiver and all this stuff is going on and then the ref gets around to blow in the 22nd and teams are frittering away the 20 seconds i would like to see them say it's a 25 second clock and it's going to be 25 seconds from the moment the ball is blown dead you got to make all your substitutions to get everything done in 25 maybe i'd even go to 30 but force the ball to get a play. We don't get as many actual plays as there used to be in games back in the 80s and 90s. We go to football to see plays. We don't go to football to see the refs standing there watching stuff. I want to see each team having 65 plays a game. Typically now, each team gets about 55 plays a game. That's 20 fewer plays that we're not getting to see than we could if they changed the clock rules back, right? So you've really got me on a soapbox now, Don. <laughs> <laughs> CFL players all wear a face mask for safety. 
With COVID-19 on our field, we also need to wear our masks to keep everyone safe. Do your part. Be a team player. Before we get away from it, McNall, Gretzky, and Candy, and what, about 94? Yep, they, they, uh, the team was sold in uh, April of 94 to John Labatt uh, slash TSN. Uh, McNall, of course, ran out of money well before that. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a sad story, actually, and this is in the book as well, that uh, it was about the beginning of 93, the walls were closing in on McNall, because he turned out that he was, all, he was a fraud artist, right? He, would, he, had, he had wheedled hundreds of millions of dollars out of banks and investors, all based on false premises, on, on phony collateral and other false things. And it was, it was starting, the walls were starting to close in on him. Everything was about to collapse. So at the beginning of 93, he tells Brian Cooper, who is his, uh, effectively the president of the team. He was, I think his official title was executive vice president, but he was running the, the organization in Toronto. McNall tells Cooper, find a buyer and don't tell John. And I don't know exactly why he didn't want to tell John. McNall was kind of cagey when I asked him about that. But I, th- I think it was he didn't want John to, to know that McNall wasn't what he said he was. So Cooper looks around for a buyer. Eventually, Cooper gets fired himself, but they find this buyer. Candy only finds out that the team is for sale a few weeks before it was going. the sale was going to go through. He initially thought, okay, I'm going to put together my own group. I'm going to buy this team, and we're going to keep this stream going. Because he loved the Argos. Like, we've had, you know, we've been around for almost 150 years. The Argos have been around since 1873. They've had a number of owners over that time. The one that loved them the most was John Candy. Grew up in Toronto, wanted to play for the Argos. He played high school football. He thought he would get there if it hadn't been for a knee injury. And he suddenly finds out that they're going to sell the team out from under him. And he says, I'm going to put a a group together. But there wasn't really enough time. And he finds out, sad phone call. He gets called. He's on the desert in Mexico filming this movie, Wagons East standing on a dusty Mexican desert, talking into a satellite phone. His agent or his business manager is telling him the Argos are being sold. It's official now. He finds out, and a day or two later, he drops dead in the desert. The sad ending of the story. So McNall, now Candy's dead. McNall and Gretzky sell it to, to Labatt and TSN, and that's the end of the McNall thing. McNall ends up going to, to federal penitentiary in the States for about six and a half years. He openly admits everything. He talks talks completely openly about all the things he did. It's almost too blasé about it, arguably. So yeah. So then and then we've gone went from Labatt's TSN to some not so great owners like Sherwood Schwarz and uh, David Cinnamon and, and Howard Sokolowski, who were who did a lot of good things but didn't really have the kind of money they needed to run the team. Braley owned the team for a few years. While he also owned the Lions, um, the Argos stopped spending money on marketing. Now we've got arguably, you know, the, the most well-heeled ownership we're ever going to have in MLSE. And I, I worry that they've seen the reality that football has dropped so badly in this market that it's going to be really hard to bring it back, uh, which is why I think they're pushing for a merger with the XFL but uh, that's another story we can get into or not. I, I, I sort of tangented it off there, but yeah, that was, it went from McNall to, to Labatt's and TSN for about roughly five years, I think, and then to Schwarz after that. We'll get to the XFL in a moment. I, I want to touch back to 1987. The CFL needs that Grey Cup game to yep. get them through everything. 1997, another great game, Toronto-Edmonton. Yep. Uh, the infamous fumble, all that sort of fun stuff, the catch by Albert Brown everything in that game that you'd want. But at the end of the game, the CFL is in dire straits. And where is it that they pay the playoff bonuses? How do they get that money? Well, yeah, they, I mean, they, that, that was, that was a, a, a crazy part of CFL that arguably that might've been in some ways, the low point of the CFL, even though it was one of the greatest games of all time, as you said, I mean, it was a, uh, forty-three thirty-seven for the Argos, um, you know, like you said, the, the, the catch by downtown Eddie Brown and Gizmo's long kick return and Jimmy, the jet Cunningham's long kick return and Doug Flutie at his peak and Doug Flutie's infamous non fumble. They, the league had to, it was in Hamilton. The last time the great cup was played in Hamilton is coming back there this year. And it was played in amazing conditions. One of the, one of these snowballs, right. It was woke up that morning and, and I live in Burlington, right beside Hamilton and the snow was just pouring down. And I was fortunate enough to be at that game, sitting in the press box, helping Canadian press coverage. And uh, it was an amazing atmosphere with the snow just falling all through the game. 
Uh, I'll never forget, um, you know, with about 10 minutes left in the, in the fourth quarter, somebody came into the, to the press box and said, okay, everybody that's going into the locker room, you got to come downstairs right now. Like you got to, you got to come through the stands. We're going to get you down to field level so you can get right into the locker room when the game's over. And at that point, the game wasn't decided, like who knew who was going to win. So I, like a bunch of the other journalists, I trooped down the stairs at Iverwin, old Iverwin Stadium, and got and I got to stand on the field for the last five or so minutes of the game. And just to look up and see the snow coming down, and the Mounties are there with the Grey Cup, and the, the place was bedlam. The game was very close, and Edmonton was coming back. It looked like they might come back and take the lead. I think they were down by, uh, yeah, I think it was 36 to 30. I think they were down by six all of a sudden Danny McManus pass to the left side bounces off the receiver's hands I think it was I think it was Jim Sandusky and it bounces right into the hands of uh, Adrian Smith Adrian Smith's hands and Adrian Smith runs into the end zone for a touchdown and the whole Argo defense leaps on top of him in this mob scene and I'm about 10 feet away. I'm thinking, man, like I could jump on that pile, right? <laughs> well, I did. I was, uh, I had to be a journalist. I couldn't be a fan, even though inside I'm going, yes. But the funny thing was, and this is back to your point, they had to give a lot of tickets away. They had to get Tim Hortons to basically pad the stadium because they, they hadn't sold it out. And then they had to go to Tim Hortons afterwards and say, can you guys cut us a check so that we can pay the players? The, 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 the two teams that got to the Grey Cup got Grey Cup bonuses, and the league didn't have enough money to pay them. They hadn't brought in enough ticket revenue from the game and, and all the other things that, you know, ticket revenue and, and sales revenue and TV revenue, they were out of money. And so Tim Hortons had to underwrite the, the, the game checks for those poor guys. Luckily, they did. You know, the league ended up living on to fight another day, but they were on the brink in 96, just like they were in 87, maybe even closer. Frankly, I think they were closer in 96 to going under than they were in 87. And now if we flash forward 25 years hence, uh, we've almost got a parallel because at the end of that season, they have this meeting, I think, in Hamilton where the governors decide, are we going to go or no go anymore? Yeah. And what are we going to do if we do? And I think John Tory's the commissioner. And they decide to tap the NFL and say, hey, yeah. are you interested? And here we are again. They're looking to another American league to tap to say, hey, are you interested? Well, it's interesting because not only those two things are right, and also the previous effort at Salvation had been also itself with the border, right? Expansion. When Candy and, and, and McNall and Gretzky came in, and it was really driven by McNall and Candy, they said, like, we, this league's not big enough. We can't we can't grow it if there's only nine teams. And, yeah, you could try to get one out in Atlanta, Canada, but that's still not big enough. We got to go south of the border. And so they went into the U.S. They had three years of expansion, 90, 93 to 95. And uh, you ended up with the last year, there were five American teams. And there were some big fiascos down there, like the old Christmas tree anthem in Las Vegas and other things. They were also you know, one of the strongest teams we've ever seen, the Baltimore Stallions, who won the Grey Cup in 95. But it, what it did, the one thing it did do is it bought the league time. It brought and it gave them some much needed cash. Maybe it was a mistake. Maybe football was never going to succeed in Memphis or Birmingham or or uh, Las Vegas or San Antonio. And then Baltimore got destroyed by the NFL going back to Baltimore. But it, some of those guys, I mean, Fred Anderson, the owner in Sacramento, the owner in Memphis was the, was the FedEx guy. The owner in Birmingham was Art Williams, who had a lot of money. And these guys paid their bills. They paid their expansion fees. And that bought the league some time and some money to get them through to the next crisis where they went to the NFL. And as you say, now they're looking again south of the border for expansion or for, for merger. And I think it's I think in some ways it's the same rationale that we cannot get enough revenue in a, in a country as small as Canada. There's maybe only one more market that we haven't tapped into. Getting a stadium into that market is, is always a long shot. And I think some of them, and I really do think MLSE is driving the bus here, are saying we join up with the, with the XFL. We get an 18-team league with a Northern Conference and a Southern Conference. And, and we can play football in the spring and summer instead of going up against the NFL. And we can capitalize on, on, on legalized gambling, which is coming everywhere. There's an appetite for year-round football south of the border. I think they see that as potentially working, in, certainly in the big market of Toronto. Arguably, BC and Montreal also need a lot of help because football seems to have dwindled in interest in those big cities. Uh, it's very strong on the prairies. It's, it's very strong right now in Hamilton, and it's very strong in Ottawa, but I do worry that if uh, if Ottawa or if Toronto or Montreal were to ever either go out of business or leave and go to another league, I think Hamilton and, and Ottawa might not last long. I don't want a 14-team league that's based in the prairies. I want a, either a nine-team league 
or a bigger league. Actually, I honestly think there's a better chance of success with a bigger league than there is with a nine-team league in, just in Canada. To me, I'm, I like a full-blown merger. You can still have a Grey Cup championship for the Canadian, you know, the two Canadian divisions will play for the Grey Cup championship and the winner of that game goes up the following week for the combined league championship. There's some interlocking play, but there's mostly play within your country so that we'd still get mostly games against other Canadian traditional rivals. But we get a couple of games a year against Los Angeles and DC and all those guys. Gradually, you build up some new rivalries. You get American TV exposure, American TV money. The gambling thing has got potential to be huge. If there was an 18-team league that started play in April and played till Labor Day, a lot of bettors in North America would want to put money on that. The interesting thing to me is that this is a discussion that has been going on for a long, long time. It just can't be about rules and field dimensions. There's got to be something way bigger at play. It, just in my own mind, and I've heard of people talking about this a little bit, is it the structure of the CFL that maybe is looking to be changed? The XFL is one ownership group all the teams report to. The CFL are nine ownership groups. Three are community-owned. How do you mix the two? It, well, yeah, it's a great question. Uh, you know, like I, I don't think the, the current business model for the CFL does work. And, and I don't know that so much that it's the ownership structures, although that does add a real complexity to it, right? I mean, the interest, the interest of an MLSC uh, or a Calgary sports and entertainment group who own multiple sporting ventures are probably going to be a whole lot different than the interests of a single owner like a Bob Young. And those are going to be significantly different than the interests of an ownership group like Saskatchewan or Winnipeg or Edmonton that are owned by the community. So that doesn't help. There's no doubt. If you had the chance to be successful in the big markets, I think you could make the business model work. The trouble is, in my view, the big markets have just struggled for so long and so many other things have come in to, to cause problems that, like, in, particularly in Toronto, I can really speak closely about Toronto. I'm an Argo season ticket holder. I've been, a, I've been a season ticket holder most of the past 40 years. I follow the team's fortunes and the league's fortunes closely. The Argos are number four or five in this market. They're way behind the Leafs. They're way behind the Raptors. They're way behind the Blue Jays. At some level, they may be behind TFC, the soccer team. They get way better TV ratings than soccer does. Toronto, unfortunately, has become, first of all, it's a basketball city almost as much as it is a hockey city. And the Blue Jays, you can't diminish. They're, they're, they've been around now for 45 years, and, and they have they have a huge segment of the, of the, the marketplace that likes the Blue Jays, and they found a way to market themselves to young people as a, as a place to go and drink on a Friday night and stuff. But Toronto's also become an NFL city. So you now got the CFL perceived in this market as, as a second-rate thing. Uh, and I just don't know how you turn that around. When they moved into BMO in 2016, I, like everybody else, I looked at it as potential salvation. Get out of that awful Sky Dome, which was the worst place to watch a football game. Get back to outside. Get back to a grass field. It's a beautiful facility. I don't know if you had a chance to be there to watch a game, but it's it's one of the greatest stadiums in Canada for, for the enjoyment of the spectacle. Like You're right on top of the action. There's no ads on the field. It's fantastic. Uh, you got the skyline, you got the planes coming into the island airport, everything's beautiful. And they've got they've got kind of a roof on both over both grandstands. So unless the rain's coming in sideways, most people can stay pretty dry. And I thought it's going to be the salvation, but it's going to take three to five years to build it back up. Well, we've been there for four years, and I, for the last couple of years, I thought, yeah, that three to five year prediction was wrong. It would take eight to ten years because you're dealing with basically 35 years of anything between neglect and abuse by ownership groups with a couple of mild exceptions along the way. I mean, they, they certainly 91, you know, the first year of McNall, Gretzky, Candy, everything was great. But the next year they put the ticket prices up and people, and they won the Grey Cup and people moved on and the Blue Jays got into the World Series. And so things, again, with people's attention span changed. Uh, and then the turn up McNall stopped spending money and they wouldn't even pay his bills. The Sherwood Schwarz era was, was an embarrassment in many ways. Cinnamon and Sokolowski, did all the right things they like they brought back the double blue colors and they changed they and fixed up the logo and they did a whole lot of really good things and they they even padded the attendance at Skydome by giving away a lot of freebies but they had no money in the end and so that was a problem 
Braley came in, stopped spending money. So they've got all these years of, of problems with ownership. And it even goes back as far as 84, right? They won the Grey Cup in 83 and wouldn't spend a dime on marketing. At the time, the Blue Jays were just getting competitive and were marketing themselves to kids. So you're going back as far as early 80s, coming up almost on 40 years now of neglect, bordering on abuse most of the time. So to fix it would take an eight to 10 year plan, which means an eight to 10 year willingness to lose money. And I don't think MLSC is looking at it saying like, we could sustain this for a while, but I don't think we can sustain it forever. And, but even more importantly than that, I don't even think it's so much about the bottom line. MLSC is, is the most powerful giant sports conglomerate we've ever seen in Canada. And one of the things that drives them, it's not operating profits and losses, it's enterprise value. And if you look at what the, what the Toronto Maple Leafs were worth, what, what it would have cost to buy the Toronto Maple Leafs 30 years ago versus what it would cost now, if you look at what the Raptors paid as an expansion fee in 1995 versus what it would take to buy them now, it's gone up exponentially. It would cost billions of dollars to buy the Leafs or the Raptors, and they didn't spend billions of dollars to buy in. You could still buy the Argos today for you know, assuming they got on an equal, on a decent financial footing in a nine team league, maybe they'd sell for 5 million bucks, the same price they sold for in 1989, the same price they sold for in 1991. And of course, as I get into in the book, those prices weren't actually real. They were, it wasn't that much money changing hands. If MLSE would like to say, we can turn the Argos from a thing that might be worth 5 million bucks into a thing that's worth 50 million bucks or hundred million bucks. And I think they think that might happen if the XFL thing were to happen and it were to grow, potentially, then you could see the enterprise value of, of Toronto Argonauts and the enterprise value of every other team in the league growing. Uh, I don't know about how you deal with this, this ownership thing. Though. Like, Would you be willing to have a single ownership model in Canadian football? The XFL does it, and, and MLS does it. The, the MLSE owns TFC, but they're, they, own, they own it under kind of a corporate league ownership structure. I don't really know the ins and outs of that, but somehow they make it work. Those soccer franchises have at least a, a book value of more than they had 10 years ago. Some people go, it's all, it's all a Ponzi scheme. There, there's no money to be made in soccer. I don't know if that's true, but the people seem to want to invest. The league has grown 25 or 30 teams now in MLS. CFL still got the same number of teams it had back when the NHL had six teams. Yeah, part of the problem is geography. I mean, Canada, there's only so many large centers that you can get into. And yeah, but you could scale you could scale the CFL back to a smaller thing where you could go into London and Windsor and Quebec City and, and Saskatoon and Kamloops and Kelowna and Victoria, but you'd have to be smaller. You, they don't have the stadium infrastructure, so you'd have to be able to make it work with maybe 10,000 paying customers instead of 20. So then your salary cap's going to go down and you're maybe not going to get Bo Levi Mitchell and Cody Fajardo and, and guys of that ilk. It's challenging. I would love to see a 12-team Canadian Football League with six teams in the East and six teams in the West. I just don't see it ever happening. We might get to 10 if we're lucky. But I could see getting to 18 if you get the nine teams South and nine teams North. To me, that's very exciting to contemplate. And obviously, the rules will have to be dealt with. And I'm not as bullish. On, I'm not as hardcore on the rules as a lot of Canadian fans are. I'd be open to four downs. I'd be open to 11 men. I just want to be entertaining rules. I want, I want the 25-second clock and other things that'll make for an entertaining spectacle. And I think if they do this, this merger, they'll do that. I think they'll change up a lot of rules to make it super exciting, fast-paced, attractive to young kids, attractive to video game generation, and attractive to gamblers. Earlier this week, we've got a 21 season announced by the CFL. Hallelujah. Uh, what I like about it, the East gets to stay within the division, eight of the 14 games, yep. which helps rivalries was lost a little bit when they were always playing so much out in the West. Yeah, they played more games against the West than they did against the East, which is crazy. So yeah, we, that's changed. It's, I hope they can get fans in the stands. Obviously, we're all reliant on public health for that. The trends seem to be going in the right direction, and we just got to keep our fingers crossed that for, for two more months, nothing goes nothing goes off the rails. I really want to be at the first game that's played at BMO. The, I'd love to be at the Labor Day Classic in Hamilton, although I wouldn't be surprised if you know they may be limiting the number of tickets, so I probably wouldn't give it to me as a non-Tiger Cat season ticket holder. And let's hope that by, by October or November, we're getting full stadiums. It, it's got potential to be a super fun year. Grey Cup's going to be in December. It's going to be in Hamilton. Randy Ambrosi talks about it being what a great way to celebrate after this tough year and a half that we've had, and he's right. And then we go into the last year of Canadian Football League as we know it next year. Final Grey Cup of the traditional era. The first era is held in Regina. 
And uh, then we move right in the following spring into a spring summer league with, with the American Canadian divisions. To me, that's a very exciting prospect to contemplate. I don't know that I'm going to get my way. I don't know that MLSE is going to get its way. If MLSE is in fact pushing for this, which I think they are, I think it's, to me, it's got the best chance of, of meeting that we can keep football in Canada. People talk about Canadian football. I want to save Canadian football. I want to save football in Canada. I want to have a, go, a team to go and cheer for. I want to be able to go to BMO and watch my team. If they're playing different rules and they're playing against DC and Houston, okay, I'm okay with that. Yeah, I'll still want to play against the Tiger Cats and the Rough Riders, but I want there to be a team to follow. And I'm worried that the way things are going, I'm not sure that the Argonauts are going to be around too many more years if we don't do something radical. And then I'm worried that if that happens, then the league gradually gets down to a, a six or eight team league with basically four teams on the prairies and maybe you'll be able to keep Ottawa and Hamilton, maybe. Again, what are the names of the books and where do people find them? Yeah, thank you for asking. The The first one, which was the, the story of the 80, it's, well, it's about the 83 Argos, but it's really about the 81 to 83 Argos. It was, uh, it's called uh, Bouncing Back from National Joke to Grey Cup Champs came out in 2013 to mark the 30th anniversary of the 83 Grey Cup champion Argos, the team that won after 31 years of in the wilderness. And, and for most of those 31 years, they really were a national joke, as the title says. And interestingly enough, the 81 team was the worst in the Argo history, 2-14, and 14, just a horrendous year. But very many of the same players were there two years later when they won the Grey Cup in 83. That's available online. Uh, you can you can find it uh, on Amazon. Uh, I, I always encourage people, if you're, if you're going to buy the book online, go to lulu.com, L-U-L-U. It's, it's the company owned by Bob Young, the guy that owns the Tiger Cats. I, I self-published that book. If you buy it from Lulu, I get a bit more than I get from if you buy it from Amazon. Uh, if anybody's really interested in, and, and wants to get an autographed copy, you can get directly in touch with me because I've got copies here and I'm happy to, to sign them and send them off. My uh, my Twitter handle is at PXW13. My email address is paulwoods13 at gmail.com. Uh, the new book is called Year of the Rocket, uh, John Candy, Wayne Gretzky, A Crooked Tycoon, and the Craziest Season in, in Football History. It will be out, precise date to be determined. I, I'm, I'm doing it with a publisher this time. It's a fairly new four-year-old publishing house, nonfiction house called Sutherland House. They have a very cool set of titles and a very great editor in Ken White, but because they're new and they're small, they're pretty nimble. And so we don't have a specific release date yet. We've been basically trying to peg it to the start of the season. In fact, I sent a note off to Ken today saying, Argo's first home game is August 21st. I think that should be the target. The book better be ready by the 21st of August. So it will be out around then and it will be in stores. It'll be in, it'll be in chapters and indigo, but I would, I would encourage anybody that wants it. If you have independent booksellers in your town, go to the independents. We got to keep those guys alive. You know, we've got a great one in Burlington called a different drummer. And there's a few of them across the country. Most cities have one good independent bookseller. And if we can help those guys, we should do that. Nothing against Indigo and Chapters, but I really want to keep the indies in business. And of course, it'll be, it'll be available online through Amazon and uh, probably directly through Sutherland House. Uh, and I may have copies at that point as well, if anybody wanted to get it from me. I'm, I'm hoping to have some kind of an event in Toronto around an Argo game. They may do a reunion this year because it is the 30th anniversary of 91. There was talk about maybe doing a celebration reunion type game. With the COVID restrictions, I don't know if they're going to be able to make that happen. They may not be able to fly guys up from the States without quarantining and stuff. And then it starts to get really complicated. But I expect there will be some trip paid over the course of this year to the 91 team because it really was the most amazing year in the history of the Argonauts probably not the greatest team I would say the 96 97 Argos with Flutie and company were the greatest Argo teams but 91 was the the, the most amazing Argo team and the most amazing Argo year so hopefully there'll be some celebrations and hopefully the book will be attached to that on some level it's a it was a really fun story to write it does get into some of the stuff beforehand I got a chapter about Harry Ornest and a chapter about that shootout the lights offense in uh, 1989-90 and I talk about what happens after 91 you know there was the, the the infamous stomping incident in 92 when Rocket stomped on Andy McVeigh's head and and the way it all kind of fell apart with McNall and everything it's all in there it's a great story uh, I mean obviously I shouldn't say that because I wrote it, but I, I think you know whether I wrote it well or not is up to the readers to determine. But the content of the book, which I had, had nothing to do with, is amazing. It's just it was an amazing period in the history of the Argonauts and the CFL. It's so I would encourage anybody that's interested to check it out. It should be it should be available about two months from now, roughly. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it, Paul. 
I love doing it, Don, anytime. Maybe when, when the book is out and you've had a chance to read it, we can come on and talk about some specific stories. Sounds like a plan. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean. Follow us on Twitter where our handle is at Third Down Gamble. Join us again next time. The Third Down Gamble Podcast. Audio. Worth watching.